This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. Doug, so today we're going back to the Facebook mailbag. We have a pretty nice Facebook group and people ask us questions all the time. So today we're going to be talking about what jobs we should that I would DIY or that you should DIY. We're going to talk about relocating to a high cost of living area. We're going to be talking about Melanzana sweatpants. Roth conversions, but first we have a question about live-in flipping. And this one is from Sam and really directed at you, Carl, because you are an expert in this area. How important were the live-in flips and other real estate ventures that you and Mindy got into really kind of early in your journey? And how did that impact your success and overall net worth? Sure. Well, I'll tell the backstory about this first. We had never intended to be living flippers. Uh, I was a white collar guy, a computer programmer. I did a little bit of work with my dad as a kid. He was an electrician, but I did not enjoy it at the time. So I never intended to do it as an adult. Uh, when Mindy and I were living together, uh, right around when we got married, uh, we had an issue with the plumbing in our shower. Um, like anyone would do back then, I called up a plumber he showed up. He said he was going to come back the next day to fix it. He never did. So I went to the library, figured out how to solve it myself. I think he wanted like $125. And I I think I solved it for like $2. It was a washer from Home Depot. And that was it. I had to go to the library to get a book. I'm old. This was pre-YouTube. So now the whole process would have been even more efficient. But it was at that point I thought, wow, this, this actually wasn't that hard. We should try to do some other work. So we did some tile work, uh, cabinets, and eventually that just uh, turned into a whole bunch of other things. But even then, we didn't know we wanted to live and flip. It was after we sold that first house with a plumbing issue and had done some minor stuff to it, but we sold it for $100,000 profit. And because of the tax code, this is the two out of five year rule, where if you live in it for two out of the five past years and have owned it for two of those past five years, you don't have to pay any capital gains. So we walked away with $100,000. And at my job, I was only making about a third of that before taxes. I'm like, holy crap, we have to do this again. So we did it again and again and again. And right now we're wrapping up our ninth or 10th one. So that's the long story of how I became a a flipper, even though I did not intend to do it. Um, Back to Sam's original question. I actually wrote a post about this and... Our gains from living flipping, just uh, what we gained from all this work is about a million dollars. And it's actually going to be a lot more than that because we still have a couple houses that we have not sold yet. So it's not an understatement to say or an overstatement to say it's the core of our net worth. We took the gains from these houses and either invested them or put it into our next house and worked our way up. So we definitely would only have a fraction of our current net worth if we did not do this. Did it snowball over time or was it kind of evenly split? Like each one was roughly the same sort of margin percentage wise, you know? 
Yeah, they were all different. Some were better ideas than others. The The worst one was we had a, a lake house that we bought and we decided to put a second story on. So we outsourced part of that. But we did that in 2006. And you know what happened right after that. Uh, the luxury market, the floor fell out from under it. So that one wasn't so hot. But everyone was a little bit different. There was a couple we did that took probably three or four months of work. And there were others that took... Six or seven years, like uh, like the Lake House and our previous one here in Longmont. So you had nine or ten of them, about a million bucks. Sounds like some of them didn't work out. What percentage of the we'll we'll just call it ten for even math or easy math? What percentage of them like worked out, and which ones were like kind of failures? I think there was only one that we probably broke even or lost a little bit of money on, and that was the biggest one, that Lake House. Uh, all the others were successes to varying degrees. Uh, and by success, I mean they were we made money from them and more money than we would have if we just would have bought the house and held on to it. But with all that said, I don't think this is the right choice for everyone. Uh, there's two things I think people should take into consideration. One is it's very difficult to find and work with contractors. So if you don't have those kind of skills in your family or don't have good connections, you should try to maybe even establish those connections before you even buy the house just because it is so hard to find workers. And maybe it's easy in other parts of the country, but I don't think so. I think there's a labor shortage. shortage. But on the flip side of that, if you are willing to do the work yourself, I think you could that, – that may not be a bad idea because if you enjoy it, you're probably going to make even more money because I think the labor is worth that much more just because it's so hard to get people if that – I don't know if I made any sense mm -hmm. there. Yeah, a little bit of sense. <laughs> as much as I expect from you, Carl, this time of morning. So I'm just kidding. Yeah, you made plenty of sense. I do have some follow-up questions. Uh, one is not a question. I'm going to add a clip in here from a recent South Park episode that I sent to you, which really, I mean, it summarizes exactly what you said. The other thing is, you know, you mentioned the lake house kind of broke even on paper, right? Yes. Okay. Otherwise, you guys did the due diligence, the market timing was right. You guys chose good homes to do this on. It sounds like you did not calculate any of your time into this, right? Have yeah. You, have you ever tried to do that? Because on paper, it's like, oh, fuck, this is a slam dunk. Million dollars, you were living there anyway. You learned a bunch of skills, but really it took, it, it shaved years off your life. This dramatic, but it was a lot of work, right? Oh, absolutely. And especially the lake house. If I could take that one back, I would in a second. And it's hard to do this, to have these kind of thoughts because it's all in retrospect. If the economy did not go into the dump, we probably would have made hundreds of thousands off it. But even then, it turned into a nightmare. The contractors we hired to do some of the work were terrible. There was a horrible rainstorm in the middle of it where the wind blew all the tarps off, and then it rained like 12 inches in 24 hours, and Whoa. there was rain coming through our ceiling fans and lights in the part of the house we were living in. It's like a Three Stooges episode. You ever see that one? <laughs> where they're plumbers, and they like hook the, pl the plumbing up to the, the light fixtures and- all through the house, there's just like water coming out, the, the light fixtures. You know this one? Yeah, yeah. I think I do. That's pretty much it. Okay. Only worse in our case and not funny. But yeah, if you don't enjoy it, this is going to take your time. I, I remember having um, 
we had a family member come over and uh, he's like, yeah, can I watch some TV? And I'm like, oh man, the uh, the TV's still in the box. And he's like, well, you moved here like two years ago. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we just don't have time for that type of thing. But I did get it out for him. But, and that's what I'm saying. If you don't really enjoy this, there's plenty of other ways to make money. And I would say, I think Doug, you'll strongly agree with this is, if this isn't for you or you're on the fence, you should strongly default to not doing it. VTSAX isn't going to cause water to come through your ceiling fan. It's not going to cause contractors to not show up. Set it and forget it, even though it might be a little bit less money. I also would not do this if you have kids or a lot of other obligations in your life. I did this when I had a full-time job and I was working on the blog too. So between 40 hours a week at the job, maybe 50 hours, another 40 or 50 hours of this, and then 10 to 20 hours a week on the mm -hmm. blog. Uh, yeah, I think I went through a lot of sleep deprivation, which is not good. So there's two sides to this one. And I had an opportunity for sort of a live-in flip situation, but I bought my house at the end of 2005. I've told the foreclosure story before, but it didn't work out. I did have the opportunity to fix up the house. It was uh, built in like 1918, 1917, something like that. A lot of stuff needed to be done and it would have been a perfect canvas to practice because I'm sure the first few times that you did tile, it probably wasn't quite right. And you've gotten better over the probably dozens of bathrooms that you've <laughs> retiled and stuff, right? Sure. So this brings us to our next question here from Patrick. So with all of Carl's DIY experience, what house projects would he now hire out like flooring or, or tile or drywall or bathroom remodels instead of spending the time doing it yourself? Wow, that's a good one. And uh, yeah, I've got two answers, which might be diametrically opposed. But the first one is, <laughs> if I could find good people, I would hire it all out because I need my time more than I need the money. Uh, if I were to back this up 10 years, I would say hire out stuff that you don't want to do that might be labor intensive. Like I don't like to be on a roof, especially in the summer. Uh, roofs used to be cheap. They've gotten a little bit more expensive, but I would definitely still try to hire that out. Drywall sucks, so I'd definitely try to hire that out. The, the one thing I w would not hire out, probably the number one thing, and this is going to be a controversial answer because it freaks people out more than anything else. Do you know what I'm going to say, Doug? Yeah. Electricity, right? <laughs> yeah, electricity. So a lot of people hate it. And my dad was an electrician, and he said a lot of electricians are are assholes or prima donnas because they know people fear it, so they get like little God complex and, complexes and stuff like that. But the truth is... It's not that hard. Have you done any? You've done some electrical work, Doug, right? Like you've replaced outlets or something. Yeah, yeah. A little, a little bit here and there. And then I took like a shitload of um, electrical engineering classes. So we did some stuff where, you know, you actually could get hurt. But so we went through a lot of safety procedures. That was about 20 years ago, but I'm pretty comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, too, just turn off the circuit, or if you are working on the circuit itself in the panel, uh, turn off the whole thing to the house, and there is little to no risk. Um, again, just like investing, this is not professional advice. This is to <laughs> amateur uh, dudes talking about uh, what you may or may not want to do. Consult 
an electrician or at least consult YouTube and be safe. But yeah, and there's a couple things. It's like capacitors, right? They store energy, right? Yeah. So you got to make sure you don't mess with capacitors and then some transformers could be a little tricky. So those are in like old tube TVs or like amplifiers, like tube amplifiers. But generally, aside from capacitors and stuff, not advice, but those are the the couple things, right? And turn off the circuit, right? Turn off the circuit. Yeah, to turn off the circuit. It's super easy to work with, uh, like install a new light fixture, or change the switch out, maybe put a dimmer in. None of these things are that hard. Uh, I even work with a panel now that used to freak me out a little bit, but I just installed an EV car charger like a month ago. And I don't know, it's kind of fun too. It's gratifying. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, so not too bad. So that's that's some stuff that you would do. Any other details about the DIY stuff? Uh, one other one I would always do myself is plumbing because at least here, plumbers are very expensive and it's so easy to do now. It used to be more of a skill when you had to sweat copper and work with lead pipes and all this stuff, but now you just work with PVC or ABS for the waistlines. And most places, except in Chicago, I think, allow you to do PEX, which is great, super easy to do. And you'll save a ton of money. How about you, Doug? Is there anything you would do yourself? I know you had a project that went a little bit awry when you hired out a sink and the guy left a cardboard washer in there. Right. Yeah. So we had a, a laundry sink installed and basically they just left some of the packaging in between, I guess it's the sink basket or uh, like, is that what you call it? The sink basket that goes at the bottom like the drain yeah. area so yeah there was just cardboard in there and even my with v very little skill i was like i'm pretty sure there's supposed to be like plumber's putty or a gasket or a seal or whatever obviously not cardboard that just soaks through they even came back we were like hey this thing's leaking because i as soon as i finished i like plugged it up filled it up with water to make sure it would hold because it's you know I don't, try, I don't trust them. Um, so they came back and tightened it. And then later I looked closer and I was like, what the fuck? Like these guys didn't even look completely incompetent. So there's a couple, like some light plumbing things I'm okay with, like um, some, some switches and some other things, adding a dimmer, putting in like a fan, stuff like that. Pretty good with all that kind of stuff. And I th I'm good with moving heavy things so i did do the landscaping here however now that i've gotten it out of my system depending on what else is going on i maybe would just pay for that but as as you know right you've tried to hire out and get some help for things it is hard to actually get a contractor to show up so do you have any tips for finding good people to work with you said hey you know start your network early if you have the opportunity yeah, the absolute best thing you can do is find recommendations from people who have had a successful experience. Like I was going to DIY the landscaping, and then you thankfully talked me out of it, which was uh, great. God, that would have been a disaster trying to do that myself. But I got a, a good recommendation from someone, and he had used this person, and so did someone else. Uh, and they worked out great. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything beyond that. I, I guess the one thing I will say not to do is I've had – Terrible success hiring people off of Craigslist. There are, there are a lot of bad people on there. Even if you get their recommendations, they're not going to give you a job that they know they screwed up. They're going to give you their brother or something like that. So I, I don't trust recommendations either. If you do need recommendations, what I say instead is 
can you tell me about the last three jobs you did? And then they'll describe them. And then I'll say, okay, um, may I have the numbers or address so I can talk to those people? And I think that's a more reliable uh, way to get a true sense of their work. Because, yeah, I mean, the other thing I'll say about this whole DIY stuff is there's a lot of people who just don't do good work. Every time I've tried to hire out, I don't think I've ever had someone do something better than I could. Now, granted, it's going to take me a lot more time, but no one cares about your house like you. This guy who's going to be in and out of there in five minutes doesn't mm -hmm. give a shit. He just wants to get in and out of there and get paid. That's certainly a high measuring stick, though. It's like, oh, could you do better? Of course you can, Carl. You're a you're a skilled uh, craftsman, right? Um, it depends. <laughs> it's complicated. So, and and I, I mean, I don't have any specific, um, like, real advice that you didn't already mention for finding people to work with. However, I will provide a business idea for any, especially like like a young entrepreneur that's looking for business ideas, I would find some contractors and try to organize them. You work with the scheduling and you sell and you have like a high-end handyman business where it's like, we show up on time, we're not overbooked, it will be expensive, but when you call, I answer the phone and I talk to you and I can give you the answer or whatever. Because I think... I think a lot of the issues are like with scheduling and the admin and it's like a good handyman company, a good service. They probably are busy doing the work and they suck at the scheduling. So their schedule gets fucked up. They're estimating things improperly. So they just get like overbooked and then the whole thing falls apart. So do you, what, what do you think about that? Is that is that a good business idea? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, uh -oh. especially if you can get someone maybe to handle the phone stuff so they don't have to because the last thing you want to do in the middle of a job is to be answering the phone all the time or maybe tell people that you have a window that you're going to call them back. Like, please leave a message, send an email, and I'll get back to you. I return phone calls in the evenings between five and six, something mm -hmm. like that. Yep. And I think, yeah, an organized person, a good project manager should be able to like make it work a little bit better. And then the thing is you would have to charge a premium, but I know we tried to call like several landscaping companies and only like 20% of them called, the, called us back at all. And then only one of them gave a quote, like it actually showed up to give a quote. Yeah. So maybe it was the wrong time of year. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it's pretty tough these days. So, okay. Anything else on the DIY front? Uh, the one final thing I'll say is based on what you just said, a, a lot of the people that I've found that are actually good and who show up, like don't really have an online presence. It's all word of mouth stuff. Uh, and a lot of them don't have good communication skills either, but they, uh, yeah, they showed up and got it done, but it would have been hard to find them if I did not have the referral from someone else. So we haven't recorded in a couple weeks, Carl. We had it scheduled two weeks ago, but you were sick, kind of like, I was thinking of Ferris Bueller the other day. You were like, oh, I could barely talk. And I'm like, is this guy really sick? I think he's trying to take a long weekend. So are you healthy now? What's going on? Yeah, I was actually sick. I, I had too much excitement in my life and a lot of it <laughs> was concerts. My, my mom came into town and she wanted to see Queen with Adam Lambert. Are you familiar with that show? And not only because you told me about it, but yeah. I know, I mean, I know Queen, but I don't know Adam Lambert very well. Yeah, it was really good. Like, I'm not a huge Queen fan, but Adam Lambert is a 
great successor to Freddie Mercury. And you would have, I was thinking about you all while watching this show because uh, Brian May is a really great guitarist. And mm-hmm. He did a, I was wondering if they were going to give him a solo and they did and it was super cool. Um, do you know he's an astrophysicist too? I was about to ask you, yeah. yeah. He has like a PhD in um, astronomy or whatever. Right? Yeah, something to do with astrophysics. Yeah. Something that way beyond us, but they had like planets flying around when he was doing his solo. So I had that and then like five or six days later, we went and saw Depeche Mode. So lots of late nights, which do not sit well with me and I always get sick when I have lack of sleep yeah it was a lot that that is a tough thing with the concerts and i know actually several of our friends and you have been going to more and more shows and yeah in in my personal life someone was like hey so what show would you go to if you know price was no object and i'm like i I don't know there there's so few these concerts are so late (laughs) it really i mean it takes like days to recover so it really has to be worthwhile and the thing is, too, the thing I've thought of is a lot of these concerts like Queen and Depeche Mode, like their audience is old. If they knew their audience, <laughs> it should be like an early bird special. They should have the show like at five in the afternoon or something, or maybe six, let people get off work, forego the opening act. No one cares about that anyway. And just be done by like 830. Then we can all be in bed by 10, and which is still a little bit later than I like to be in bed, but it would be, be better than like midnight or one in the morning, which is uh, a nightmare right. for me. And it's rough, too, because you, you end up, you know, it's downtown or like at Red Rocks or something, which is fantastic that we have access to that. And it's really not that far. People like literally fly into the Denver area to go to Red Rocks. It's about an hour from here. And when you're leaving at 1130, it's pretty, it's late. And, you know, that's a late time to be on the road and yeah. it's just not as fun as it used to be. I mean, do you, did you ever go out at that time where you like, you like took a nap at like 8 p.m. and you woke up at 10 and then you went out at like 11 and stayed out till three or something. Yeah, of course. Like college, stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're way, way past that. <laughs> and Mindy used to be a, a waitress and a bartender. And she said like they would close up at two, but then there were bars that all the wait staff would go to that were open till 4 a.m. And they would just close that out. I'm like, wow, I never got that extreme. Yeah. When I think back to those younger years, like how much better I would have felt most days if I just got enough sleep, especially because like I think I just would stay out and then I would like work the next day and, and like generally operate what I thought was fine. I'm sure I was like sleepwalking through my day. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not good. But with all this said, uh, I have another show on Saturday. But it's supposed to start at 8.30 and be done around 10. Okay. What which, which show is this? <laughs> this is U2 at the Sphere. All right. That's so, cool. Yeah, it's early and it, we can walk. It's like uh, there's no parking. I guess parking is 125 bucks there. And uh, yeah, so we'll just walk back, hopefully be in bed by like 10.30 and that will be that. Yeah. You know... Ramit would have smacked your face if he heard you say, oh, parking. Who who gives a shit about parking? You guys got the hotel. You just walk to it. Don't worry about the parking. But 120 bucks. It's a lot. Yeah. Get a fine. I mean, we could eat out for like a week if we just ate like Taco Bell. I know. know. Yep. That's nuts. So, okay. You're feeling better. That's great. It's good to have you back in the studio here. And you also got back from a trip. You guys had a little trip. You want to talk about that a little bit? Maybe like one highlight? Yeah, real quick, we gave both of our girls, we said before you graduate from high school, you each can pick out a trip that you want to go on. 
And uh, we'll pay for it within reason. Our younger one originally said the, the Maldives, Maldives. How, how do you say that? Maldives, I think. Yeah. Anyway, that's, I don't know what the wrong person has. It's halfway around the world. I think she saw one Instagram reel on it and wanted to go there. So we're like, no, we're not being on a plane for 24 hours each way. So uh, she picked New York City for her second uh, for her second trip or her second choice. So we ended up going to there. One highlight. I'm trying to think what that would be. There were so many. We saw Paula Panther. Hi, Paula, if you're listening. Uh, that was cool. Went to a really good Italian restaurant. I guess one thing, uh, well, there are two things that stand out. Sorry, Doug. One is they have an aircraft carrier in Hudson Bay right there, mm. and they had a they have a space shuttle there. So I saw that, and an SR-71, if you're familiar with that is. Come on. No, I'm not. Oh, really? It's the fastest plane in the world, like a Cold War spy plane. I saw that, and they had the new Tesla Cybertruck on display at a Tesla store in uh, the meatpacking district. So that was pretty interesting to see in person. Oh, cool. Is that the first time you've been that up close? Or? Uh, no, I saw it at a couple at the Peterson Auto Museum and at the Tesla Gigafactory opening, but I've never seen it on the ground. This was the closest I've ever been to it, actually. Okay. How close? Did you? Could you touch it? No, they discouraged that. I probably could have, but I would have been kicked out and banned from that point. I was probably three feet away. But there was a crowd there. There were people waiting at the store. I got there right before it opened, and there was a crowd there waiting to get in to see that thing. How much would one of those cost if, if you bought one? Can you can you just buy one? Um, tomorrow we find out. It is going to be released tomorrow. I'm going to that party too. God, I'm, I'm not doing good on my sleep. But uh, yeah, the speculation is the cheapest one will be around 50000 Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. I mean, that's the normal price of a car, so I hear. Yeah, and but usually the way Tesla does it is the most expensive ones will be released first, so they can make the most money off of things. So I suspect it will be eighty to a hundred thousand for the initial ones. Are you going to get one? Probably not. <laughs> okay. My couple of weeks have been less eventful overall, so no shows, no concerts, no travel. We stuck around here, and I've been getting into the routine. And for a little while, I was getting great sleep. The opposite of what you were talking about, you know, it's just going to bed early, it's getting dark early, just really settling into winter. It was great. And then at the time that we're recording this, it was, uh, it's close to Thanksgiving, right? It's, Thanksgiving was last week. And I, I ate too much, I drank too much day over day. There's been a lot of like little uh, parties around here, which is really fun, but I did start drinking a lot more, kind of like the old days. I mean, I, I could feel it like night overnight. At first, it wasn't too bad. And then as my body got beat up a little bit, I could I could tell I wasn't sleeping as well. And then some of my heart rate metrics and stuff weren't as good. But I'm past that now. I turned the corner. I'm eating a little healthier again. I was counting calories, right, per our uh, fitness episode here recently. I still counted calories, but I've timed it so that, you know, I, I cut calories a little bit. And then I've slowly like added calories back to where I was. And I basically ate whatever I wanted. I had like big plates of dessert. You saw me, right? I was eating crazy, right? But it all fit into my weekly calorie allotment and everything was fine. I have not put on any weight, even nice. though I've been like eating and drinking like an asshole. Are you a fan of the traditional Thanksgiving dinner? Yes. Yeah, I love it. I actually smoked a couple turkeys um, 
for uh, different gatherings and love stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, really take the gravy seriously uh, when I'm smoking the turkeys as well. And yeah, all the stuff, cranberry sauce, this and that. Um, I made some cranberry sauce that I think you would hate. It's <laughs> so we'll, we'll make you try it. But a lot of cranberry sauce calls for nutmeg. And I thought, well, if it has nutmeg, I could put it a little, uh, maybe a little ginger, maybe a little cinnamon. And then you end up essentially with a pumpkin spice cranberry sauce, which turns out people love. I didn't tell them there was that stuff, extra stuff in there. They were just like, oh, wow, there's a little something extra. But you would have been like, someone pumpkin spiced all over this thing and it's no good. But it turned out fine. I don't know. That actually sounds pretty good, Doug. I would definitely try that. And <laughs> I had your stuffing at one of our events, oh, and it was yeah. great. Your stuffing was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I that was one where I made some uh, like twenty four hour like turkey stock because I you know had the bird. I was doing all this stuff, and yeah, really, it does make a difference. Also, I put a little extra butter in there. Don't tell anyone. I think that was the reason why people liked it. <laughs> You can't go wrong with butter. Yeah, it was really good. I love Thanks. stuffing. Like, I'll eat any and all stuffing in front of me. Like, even stovetop. Like. Stovetop. I was going to get stovetop. And, yeah, I was talking to Mindy. It is, like, it's a, kind of a staple for a reason. You remember the commercials when we were kids, right? It's yeah. Like they were going to, I don't even remember how it goes, but the kid was going to, like, get double stovetop or something, right? Yeah. So. I'll take quadruple. And it, are you a mashed potatoes and gravy person too? Oh, yeah. Oh, so good. All the carbs. Yeah. Now, you're not a pumpkin pie person. No. So what pie do you go for uh, for that dinner? Yeah. Uh, pecan. Pecan. That's, that's the one. So you brought pies. Yes. Right. And um, the pecan was amazing. Really good. So how did you make that? <laughs> we went to Costco and I uh, picked it up off the shelf, brought it to the self-checkout. And we like to make our own stuff, but we had just gotten back from New York City and uh, there was no time to make a pie. But it was pretty good. Like Costco doesn't suck. It is hard to beat any of their like pastries or desserts. It's very good. It's probably like 80% and it's cheaper than if you bought the ingredients. Like Pecans are fairly expensive. Yeah. The rest of it's sugar, right? But pecans are fairly expensive. Their pumpkin pies are like six bucks or something. They're wow. huge, right? They're like 13 inches yeah. or something. Yeah. So it's hard to beat Costco. It's great to have them right next door. All right. Any other uh, nonsense that we have on our agenda before we move into the next question here? No, I think that's it. There might be a little bit more nonsense later, but yeah, let's get to the next question. All right. This is from Lauren. So we want to know the opinions on relocating from a low cost of living area to a high cost of living area to be closer to outdoor activities that you love and find a community you identify with. Would you move uh, or, or sorry, the move would require selling a house with a low interest rate and renting in a new state. So the questions are, should someone do it? And what tips do we have? Yeah, so Doug, I, I find this one especially hard in the current environment because Lauren alluded to it. Like, mm -hmm. I've got like a 2.75% interest rate and now like banks will give you 5% on your money. So we're, you actually like make money if you've had a mortgage for a while, if you didn't pay it off. So that's a, a ball and chain that you have on yourself and anchor. But I would say um, without question, I think she totally should move if she's not happy with where she's at. Uh, community adds so much joy and uh, 
it adds to my life so much that I think if you don't have it where you're at and you've tried to establish it there that you should definitely move, maybe give it a test run. I think she's got the right idea when she talks about renting because maybe the new place won't work out. So she can rent it, take it for a test drive. Maybe interest rates will come down. But I, I, yeah, I would completely do this. I would, I highly recommend it too. I lived in Atlanta for most of my life, 35 years. I traveled out West and loved the mountains and thought, oh, it'd be great if I could somehow move out to the front range area out here or fill in the blank, like Montana. We eventually moved there and it seemed so hard. Like I didn't know anyone in my circle that like did that without a job. The job kind of erases any of the risk, but highly recommend doing it. Making big decisions usually leads to something much more interesting than staying in the same place. I think there's a, a great video that Ramit actually published on YouTube recently that we could link up to on the pros and cons of buying a home versus renting. And when you do consider everything, it's not a slam dunk to buy a home. And, you know, renting, it could be, you know, if you don't want to live in an apartment, like we wouldn't enjoy living in an apartment so much. But a lot of times you end up I mean, not a lot of times, if you don't buy the home and you rent, you have a lot more flexibility for maybe relocating if you don't like the specific neighborhood or area that you're in. And then it gives you a little bit more flexibility to check out other places. So maybe you do move to like the front range area here in Colorado and you're like, ah, you know what? Little cooler than I want. Let's check out Santa Fe. So you still have some of the same feel. You're at a higher elevation but it's a little bit warmer in the winter just because it's further south. <coughs> or you can move further north if you like Montana or something like that or Wyoming. So the key thing I would look at here, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is how negative do you feel about the place that you're currently living? Because I've found, you know, when you remove the negatives, and for me back in Atlanta, it was a lot of traffic and heat and humidity. And I sound like a baby talking about that. It's like, oh, I had to drive in traffic and it's so hot. But I, I sweat. I like wearing shorts, you know? And um, the thing is, it's so warm. Even the shorts don't provide enough <laughs> relief. And you've said it before. You, there's only so much clothes that you could take off before you get in trouble. Yeah. Right? So anyway, the South was generally negative for me. And I... I could see being there in the winter, but the summer is like, I just can't take it. And when I think of Texas, there's a lot of cool places in Texas, right? I, and there's a lot of stuff I like about Texas, but I don't think I could ever relocate there except for like the coldest months. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I agreed. Uh, just on your weather. Do you remember being in, at, in Austin for FinCon? I think we both mm -hmm. got there a little bit early and for the first, it changed while we were there, but yeah. for the first day or two, it was just horrible. And I thought it would be great. Like, ah, it's the end of September. Austin's going to be great. But it just sucked. Like the humidity and heat were overwhelming. It's like 100 degrees. Yeah, it was rough. And I had a lot of walking. I met a couple of people out. And um, yeah, I was walking like a couple miles in like the hot city streets, like right downtown. It was rough. Yeah. So in that case, the only way you can remove the negative is to move. And uh, 
Yeah, I'm with you. I can't live in the South. I love to be outside. Like I want to be outside for multiple hours during the day. And since that's important to me, I can't live in a place like Las Vegas or Arizona or Florida. We were even in uh, Orlando like a couple of years ago in December. And even that, I think it was unusually warm, but it was not comfortable. Right. And a quick disclaimer, uh, a lot of love for the people down in the South. I know some people like it. They don't like the cold weather. So if that floats your boat, that's cool. We're not trying to tell you to how to how to live your life, but Carl and I, we just sweat too much. I, I think we're <laughs> abnormal, actually, because most people would probably say, I hate snow and ice and I want to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Uh, most people don't retire to North Dakota. <laughs> they go the opposite direction where you and I, we might end up there or Alaska or something. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I say move further north. There's often less people. I mean, you can see it in the populations, right? Like fewer people move to Bozeman, Montana because it's cold for a lot of the year and it's darker. And I'm all right with that. Yeah. And there's less people, which is a, a great plus. <laughs> yeah. It, it bodes well for our future. We'll be able to get some cheap real estate and Bozeman or Duluth or something like that. All right. So I would highly, highly consider it, even with some of the downside that you might face financially in the long run, your happiness, especially if you can plug into a great community, that would be a good thing. It sounds like you might be looking for Longmont. So uh, yeah, shoot us a message. Yeah. I want to add a couple of things to it really quickly. It doesn't have to be a bad financial decision either. You could take all the money you had in your home equity and put it into an investment. And then if you're single, maybe try to find a cheap living arrangement. Uh, I met someone at a Camp Fi who lives in Del Mar. Do you know what Del Mar is? It means of the ocean or something, right? Yeah, I think of the sea, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. I should have paid attention in Spanish class. But he lives for 500 bucks a month. And Del Mar is like San Diego, but a lot fancier. So it's really nice. And any what he does is he turns over someone's Airbnb. So he's there full time. And, uh, and that's all he does. So we got a super discount on this house. So you might be able to work out something like that. And if you really do want to own again, or even if you rent, you might be able to house hack your situation somehow, get a roommate or sublet or something like that. You're going to have to work harder, but I think all that stuff is worth it if you're going to be happier being in this different environment. Nice. All right. We have one from Haley. Yeah, this one is for you. And I didn't know this product existed, even though I was still there. And if you stay on until the sound check, you'll hear more Melanzana talk. But this is about Melanzana. Has Doug tried Melanzana's Wind Pro sweatpants? Is this a thing or did they just make it up? It's a real thing. So the Wind Pro sweatpants are a little bit thicker. Um, and it's it matches the, um, the thickness of the material you got for your Melly. And I have not tried them on personally, but I did pick some up for my wife and she loves them. They're great for like lounging around and wearing around the house and stuff like that, especially in the winter. It's quite warm, super soft. And I, th I think she loves them. She wears them probably five days a week or something currently. So highly recommend. I didn't have enough um, availability in my inventory that I could buy. Um, so I didn't get any yet, but I think, you know, that would help complete the, <laughs> I think I have, I have like five of these, right? So I have all the different versions, no pants yet. So it'll okay. be the next thing to add. It will happen for you at some point, Doug. Soon. It'll happen soon. So, and w would you consider getting 
so you have an orange melee. Would you get matching? Would you get a whole orange suit? I don't know. That, that would look kind of weird. I think I'd have to offset the color. I don't want to look like a, even more of a pumpkin than I already look like. That would just, I, I would stick out. I don't like to stick out. Like maybe black ones or dark gray or something like that. Okay. Well, I think it would look very close to, was it Jim Carrey that wore the orange uh, tuxedo in Dumb and Dumber? Yeah, or was it, uh, yeah I think you're Harry? right. I think Harry had the blue one. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah, I don't know. Or are we reversed? I have no idea. We should know this. We'll have to. Yeah, well, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I, I think you got to go all in. Go all in on the orange. <laughs> I'll take good. it under consideration. Okay. So we have a big question about Roth conversion. So I think we have enough time to run through it here. Carl, do you think we have enough time? Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. All right. This is from Claudia. And we, we may dive deeper because we're going to run through it pretty fast. So this is all about Roth conversions. So how would you do them when you have a mix of 401k, IRA, a Roth IRA, and a brokerage account? So Carl, do you want to talk about that before we move on to the next? Or should we just like run through all this kind of stuff? Um, yeah, well, maybe we should talk about what a Roth conversion is first, and we're not going to talk about the backdoor one, which is something completely different for high net worth people. Uh, yeah, so, well, f- to back up a second, a Roth IRA is where you contribute money post-tax to this investment thing, and your money is not taxed from that point on, which is the kind of the opposite of a 401k, which is where you which is tax sheltered initially, so you you don't pay taxes on it when you contribute. But every mo- all every dollar when you take out is taxed as ordinary income. When you take money out from the Roth, it is completely tax free. Uh, the most famous example of this is Peter Thiel, who I think invested like ten thousand dollars in Facebook, and then very early on, I think he was an original one of the original investors, and then it went to like a billion dollars, a billion with a B, and all that mm-hmm. money is tax free for him. So a Roth can work out really great. And what Claudia is asking about is a Roth conversion. And this is when you take your 401k and you convert it to a Roth. When you do this, you have to pay taxes on it at the time as ordinary income. So if you convert $100,000, you pay $100,000. It's like getting $100,000 in income that's going to be taxed. But after that, this thing is tax-free from that point on. And I, I should stop for a second. Uh, Doug, anything I'm missing or anything we should elaborate on? Nope. I think you covered it pretty well. Okay. Uh, let's see here. So I, I think the we've got a couple more questions here uh, or a couple more things we'd like to talk about. Uh, and one is why you would do this. So there's a couple reasons I could think of that you would do this. Number one is from this point on, your investments are going to be tax-free. So if, once you contribute your 401k to your Roth, you're never going to have to pay taxes on it again. So if you expect a lot of future growth, all that is going to be tax-free. Uh, we use it to avoid staying off uh, Medicaid. So we're, we're on the ACA, but we don't make a ton of money. Uh, and I feel the the ACA is pretty weird in that there's not a net worth question. So you could be worth $100 million, but still be on public aid because it's all about income. And if you don't have income, it forces you to Medicaid. So we convert so we can stay off Medicaid. And so that 
results in us paying more, but we feel a little bit better about doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we covered we covered some stuff. And what, one of the questions here, and I'm going to read it the way Claudia phrased it, is like, how do you convert when you're still working, but you need to retire soon, or you're going to retire soon, and you want to minimize taxes now, but also in the future? And she's about three years until retirement. So one thing baked into the question here is like, I want to minimize taxes now and in the future. It turns out you can't have everything, right? So, I mean, you can, you can minimize it as much as you can, but if you have like a relatively high income your last few years and you're retiring in three years, like you may not want to do any conversions until your income goes way down. Is that, is that a good assumption? Yeah, that would be the absolute worst time to do it. Like, let's say you're making $100,000 and you want to contribute 100000 That second 100000 is going to be taxed at the, the highest rate. So if at all possible, you'd want to wait till you are done working and have lesser income. So the ideal time to do this is when you have little income, not when you have a lot. Uh, I once had a job that had... Uh, It was called a compensation deferral program where you could say, okay, I don't want to take half my pay. And then they would pay it to you at some future date, like after you retired. Have you ever heard of those kind of things, Doug? Yeah, I think our our friend Maggie over at, um, it's like inside money, something or other. So one of our friends, I think she had a fairly significant uh, deferral program. And my dad was a firefighter and he had some deferred compensation set up as well. So Claudia should look into see it, to see if that's offered because that, that could help her do two things. It would give her some income in retirement, but it would also reduce her taxable income if she wants to get an early start on these Roth conversions. And the one thing we we uh, didn't ask, and we I don't think we have it on here, is the age of Claudia, right? So one thing you can do is convert over to a Roth and then in five years, you're able to withdraw what you put in the principal, right? No growth, but the principal. Yep. But you have to wait five years. The thing is, let's say you retire when you're 40, you have high income, you have to wait a little while uh, until you actually retire and your income's lower, right? So you don't want to get that normal um, income tax rate, right? So you wait a little while until you retire. Then you convert to the Roth, but then you have to wait like five years before you can get to that money without penalties and such, right? Yes. Did I describe that right? Yes. So it's all this shit. Then it starts getting a little bit complicated, right? And you're thinking about, well, I don't want to convert too much. There's only so much that you can convert anyway, right? But you have to watch a couple little things in here. So you stay off of Medicaid. You wait until you stop working and then you start doing the conversions and this is the case right i I never thought it would work with an advisor a fee-only advisor but this kind of stuff is really valuable because we haven't seen it before you probably only retire once an advisor sees it all the time and they could tell you hey you need to start doing your conversions at this time and then in a few years then you can start moving it over and this is why Elizabeth and I, we have a a decent amount of money in our post-tax brokerage account. While we don't get the same tax benefits, it gives us a huge amount of flexibility. And there's a great argument to have, you know, a good chunk of your um, net worth in a post-tax account so that you can bridge the gap between 
you know, 55, 59 and a half, whenever you could hit those retirement accounts, right? So this is tying it all in a bow, kind of. What did I miss? No, I totally agree. It's good to have lots of different buckets to draw from so you can account for all these different situations, whether you want to stay off ACA, whether you're currently in a high tax or lower tax situation. Uh, and remember, for capital gains for a post-tax account, I think they start at like $85,000. So, and that doesn't mean you could just take $85,000 out. Those are just your gains. So if you invested 85000 in a stock and it doubled, then you can take 170000 out and be completely tax-free. And it's actually a little bit more than that because I did not account for the standard deduction. So I really like the idea of having a, all these things in, in different buckets so you can pull from them uh, in a situation, or so you can pull from them in a way that best matches your situation or optimizes whatever your situation is at the time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, best case scenario, like back in the day, when I first started working, I should have put as much as I could into a Roth. I opened one pretty early, but I didn't, I didn't max it out. I didn't optimize it like what we would do um, nowadays, which I think that would be a great episode where you and I just say, hey, if we know everything that we know now, but we were 18 years old, how would you set things up? Yeah. So we put that on the list. Yeah, real. And generally speaking, if you make a ton of money, you probably want to err towards a 401k because you're reducing your taxable income. If you're in the 25% tax bracket and put 20000 into a 401k, that's 5000 you're saving in taxes. But if you're not making much money, like you just said early in your career, I would err towards a Roth. And if you happen to own your own business or you're an entrepreneur, a solo 401k, like when you start looking into it, fucking blows everything away. Like it's really valuable. Yep. And you, you guys have one, right? Yeah, we have. And we invest in a, a lot of income earning stuff. Like we currently have $600,000 in private loans out that we are in 12% interest and all that. Crazy. Interest, yeah, it's like 6,000 bucks a month and it, it's all in the tax shelter. So we don't have to pay any taxes on it at the moment. Man, that's cool. All right. And anything else in here, Carl? I guess the one other thing I'll say with these Roth conversions, you alluded to it with the five-year waiting period. A lot of people will do this incrementally. They'll do like maybe 40000 one year and then 40000 the next year. That way they've got a ladder. After that five-year hits, they'll have money they can pull from continuously. Yep. And another reason to potentially have an advisor, maybe hourly or whatever, to help guide you through it where – you know, it's, the math isn't super hard, but you have to understand the latter. And then you have to look at your other investments. And when you can get to them, maybe you do have some other stuff you can convert or you have real estate that's producing income. So obviously you could just put a spreadsheet together and do this. But if you want to have due diligence done to like review a little bit closer. And that's why we talked to Travis and Eddie over at Downshift Financial, right? Yep. To help us out with a little, the things that are a little more complicated that we've literally never done before and won't do again in the future. Yeah. So, all right. As we wrap up here, Carl, it's good to have you back. We can mention quickly the Buy Me a Coffee, which is the donation area to help keep the lights on here. There's actually a, a ton of lights here in the studio. And we share uh, some extra stuff. Occasionally, we post pictures from our, I think uh, it's just like little cozy weekend vacations where we go riding. Just Carl and myself, not the families. It's just a couple dudes hanging out. So we'll send some pictures from that. And uh, what, what else do we do over there? Yeah, sometimes I'll write a post. I haven't done it in a while because I've been busy with my house stuff. But as it comes to an end, we're going to focus on that more. And we've got some prizes if you're a certain donor. I think we send postcards out and 
we're probably going to get some swag going. So we've got other stuff. We've got our uh, t-shirts. So we got new stickers here too. We got asparagus stickers and some other stuff on there too. So check it out if you want to help support the show. No pressure though. We'll still produce the show, but it just helps us out a little bit really to buy the t-shirts to give out to people and then uh, some stickers and stuff like that. So. Yeah. And the stickers are real. As Doug said, I gave one to a friend, a shout out to Sean in New York. And he was like, wow, you really do have asparagus stickers. I, th- I thought you were just kidding about all that. Like, no, would we joke about asparagus? No, Sean, <laughs> we would not joke about asparagus. All right. Well, this was a good one. And if you do have questions out there, be sure to, uh, you could put it on the video. You could go to the Facebook group that really there's a lot of activity there. I hear, you know, I'm not a Facebook person, but you're, you're wrangling and moderating and making sure everybody's cool in there, right? Yeah. Well, lots of good people. We've only had, no, I don't think we've had any, any spam posts. I had one on my own 1500 days, but yeah, everyone's good. All right. Yeah. So we'll link up to that and all the stuff in the show notes. So thanks a lot. We'll catch you on the next episode. See ya. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind is pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. Carl, you just started to get into the Melanzana gear. So what's the story with that? We were in Salida visiting a friend who is relocating there. Uh, shout out to B. You know who you are. I don't think she listens, but super cool person. And I was looking at the map and it looked like I could either go through Leadville on the way back or go a different way. And I kind of wanted to go through Leadville for a couple of reasons. It's a straighter shot. Not curvy roads, Mindy gets car sick. It's very scenic. We drove through there last time after our book. And reason number three was to stalk Melanzana because ever since my failed attempt to buy merchandise from there when we were up there in the summer, I've I've been thinking about it and uh, I kind of wanted to see if they had any gear there. And maybe you could explain real quick what their deal is, how you purchase something from Melanzana. So there's a there's a shop in Leadville and you have to make an appointment to be guaranteed merchandise. They do have um, some pot- potential inventory where you could just walk in off the street, but 
typically there, and when I've been in there, it's very rare to see anything where you could walk in and buy something. So you have to make an appointment on their website and it's kind of clunky, you know, it's like what you might imagine from, I don't know, 1997 or something like that. It's like a barely operable website, I think. Um, the, the calendar loads slow. Everything's fine on the website. But anyway, you got to make an appointment. And typically, I mean, it's like three to five months out or something like that. I haven't looked in a little while. The last appointment that I had, it was like four months out. And when I went in there, they did have walk-in inventory available. However, And I tried to buy some stuff, some extra stuff. But if you have an appointment, you can't get the... Uh, non-appointment inventory. So they really try to make sure like if you if you go in there, you're not buying like a million things and then like trying to sell them on eBay because you cannot order them online. So that's the thing. It's kind of exclusive. It's all like made in, in Leadville and it's all like, you know, US source or locally sourced stuff. So. Yeah. And when I was there, Doug, just to be clear, the wait was six months. We were there in early November and the next appointment they had, I think was mid-May. So a little bit over six months. I think like more people are, I mean, literally our small show, like I've seen more people um, wearing them like in our circle of friends, which they perhaps would have gotten them any anyway, because people wear them in Colorado. But I mean, like people are talking about it that we know. Yeah, and it is recognizable. Uh, Mindy got stopped. She got a version. So uh, just to back up a second, when we went in there, they did have some inventory merchandise, and it was a bit anxiety-inducing because a bunch of other people had realized this too, so you kind of felt a sense of urgency, and and you wanted to get something before it all sold out. But uh, Mindy got the, I don't know if it's the typical kind, but like the variegated fabric, which has like a pattern on it. It's like a grid. Okay. Right. Yeah, it looks like a grid. And that one is pretty recognizable. So she actually got called out in public, I think, a couple times. Someone said, oh, nice melon, nice melons on it. Yeah. And a couple people com- complimented her on the podcast as well. So I think- oh, already. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that pattern kind of sticks out a little bit more than the plain old one. It does. Yeah. And then you got um, a different style. I have one of those too, but you got like, I think it's called a wind pro and it's a little bit thicker fabric, right? Yeah. I should have worn it. It's orange. I look like a big pumpkin when I wear it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to like sprinkle cinnamon on your head whenever I see on it. It looks good. It's a good color. So, well, welcome to the club. (laughs) Thanks. I feel special. 